So today we are starting, um, well, we're continuing our series that we started last week, uh, looking at church covenants and what that means. So last week when we were outside the building, for the most part, we had uh, a bunch of small sermonettes, devotions on covenants. So today we're going to start analyzing our church covenant. And every year we do this. As the school year gets it, it's on the horizon, we're starting to look forward to what's coming we usually look back at our church's mission, our church's mission statement, um, which says we are engaging people disconnected from God so that they delight themselves in Him through Jesus. And this is what we've looked at. So if you were here last summer, we did this. We, we took apart the different aspects of this. This year, though, um, we're going to look at something a little different. You know, our mission has been strained in the last year, year and a half, there's been things that have put uh, undue strain on a lot of things, but the one place that there probably has been the most strain is on our relationships to fellow believers, our relationships within the church, our relationships with people maybe that aren't in the church that we know. So relationships are an issue right now. And so we're going to look at what our church's statement about how we're to interact with each other, and we're going to do that through what's called a covenant. So this document, this church covenant, a covenant is an agreement between people. It's an agreement that every single one of you, if you're a member of this church, you have agreed to. It's like a marriage covenant. When you have a marriage, not only are you defining that person as your spouse, but you also are getting their family, for better or for worse. So that's what we have here. We are, we are coming together in a covenant to, to make one unit. So we're going to be looking at this now. We're calling this section My Tribe. There's been a lot of discussion of tribalism and, and a lot of it centered around politics and things like that. We're here to say, no, our tribe is found in Christ. Our identity is found in Christ. So we use this word covenant. Why, why that word? That's kind of a weird word. Some people might say contract. Some people might say agreement. Well, we use the word covenant because this is a word that God used in the Bible. He made multiple covenants with his people. Several of you, as you preached last week, you talked about God's covenants, God's past covenants. Very much like I said, like the marriage covenant. So when you have a covenant, it has what's called provisions. So we're going to use the example of marriage. We don't always do marriage right but in, at least in the way God created it, it was made to be perfect. We talk about in marriage that it's in a time of sickness and in health. We talk about in times of prosperity or poverty. We promise exclusivity. We also have an end date to the covenant, till death do us part. Our church covenant, likewise, has provisions or components. We've got four of them. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at each of those. This week, I'm going to preach on the first one. Next week, you're going to have Pastor Scott preach on the second. We got to that, Travis, the third. And then, Labor Day weekend, we're going to get the entire New Life Church together down at Willamette Park in West Lynn, and we're going to worship outside without masks as loud as we can, and we're going to have one more big gathering before the summer's over. So, I'm going to be speaking on Christian living. So, just like if you're married, you can't keep your options open. A church covenant narrows the field for you. Stated negatively, you cannot live any way you want and be a part of the church. 
Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the entirety of the church. Because ultimately, to be a part of the church, you're a part of Christ. Because his church is his body. And so it's defaming the reputation of Christ if you are living a way that does not match. You cannot come and go. You need to be a member of the body. You can't stay aloof. You can't hold back your gifts and keep them to yourself. You can't be unconcerned with the things that the church is concerned for. Or maybe we say it positively. You must obey Christ to be a member. Live as though he's transformed you to be a part of this church. You invest your time, your talent, your treasure in the church. You must move toward people, not away from people. You can't come to church to hide, but to give. All the one another passages in the Bible are about how we interact with each other, but it's also what we get out of this church covenant. And there's no more exciting thing than to to rub elbows and be around fellow believers, these eternal beings that are enfleshed in these human bodies for now that we get to spend eternity with. That being said, this church covenant is not something that's special to new life. It's not something unique to new life. As a matter of fact, most churches have something like this. All we've tried to do is we've tried to take what the New Testament teaches about members of the church, and we've tried to put it into a document. So there's four paragraphs. We're going to look at these four paragraphs over the next four weeks. So here's the first one. It starts off with a promise. It actually starts with the word we. It says, we promise by God's grace and through the indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit, colon. So all of the stuff we're going to do over the next three weeks and today starts with this ground. So I'm, I'm expecting that Travis and Scott are both going to re- rewind to this and talk about this, but if not, I want you to keep it in your mind that everything that comes with the covenant from this point on is only only done by the grace of God and by His Holy Spirit living inside of us. This is not a grit it out, effort it out, and do it in your strength. You will fail. That is not the purpose. That's not the point of this, which is why we start right here. We must have our eyes on the fact that this is God's grace. Grace is another word for gift, another word for free gift. It's a free gift of God that he's going to allow us to do this, and that free gift includes the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And that Holy Spirit living inside of us empowers all that we're going to do. So I'm going to return to that over and over again. I'm going to return to that as saying, in Christ, I'm also going to return to it and say, because of the gospel, I'm going to say because of grace. Those are all the same thing. They are what animates us. They are what gives us the ability to do what this passage is laying out. And we're going to be in Romans 12 here in a minute. So if you're there, keep your finger there. We're going to look at a few other verses before we get into that. Remember, Jesus cannot be your Savior if he's not also your Lord. And so all of this pours into our first statement. So this is what the first part of the covenant is to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of sin, and walking by faith in the newness of life to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, to be continually repenting of sin, and to live lives by faith in the newness of the gospel. So this is our promise to each other. It's not a promise that says, I'm going to do this for you. Instead, it's a promise of, I'm going to let God do stuff on me. I'm going to let God work on me. And whenever the Lord's working on you, 
it ends up spilling out on everyone around. If we're all pursuing the Lord individually, then as a church, we're going to pursue the Lord corporately better. Remember, the gospel is Jesus took your sins, your shame, your guilt, he nailed it to the cross, and then died on our behalf. And then because of God taking that sacrifice and saying, I accept it, he rose again so that we can have that life as well. You know, one author summarized the the idea of what the Bible teaches about how to live as a Christian is one sentence. He says, be who you are. Be who you are. Now, if you've been paying attention at all, you know the world says something a lot like that. No, this author's not a heretic. No, this author's not teaching something that is wrong. As a matter of fact, he's teaching it rightly. The world tries to get it, but as they do so often, close but no cigar. They take something true and they pervert it. The world says, relax, you're born that way. Or quit trying to be something you're not. You be you. They've stumbled on something very biblical. But again, the world has got it backwards. See, God does want us to be the real us. He does want us to be true to ourselves. But the you that he wants you to be true to is the redeemed you, not the natural you. He doesn't say, relax, you were born that way. He says, relax, you've been born again a new way. This is what it means to be a believer. So today, as we look at this, this picture here by Paul in Romans 12 is saying, be you, be you. Be the you that you are now because of the grace and the Holy Spirit and the gospel working on you. This is the you that you're meant to be. So here we go. We're going to kind of break apart the covenant, and then we're going to look at how it, how it is applied and how it is shown to us in Romans 12. So the first one, in keeping with the truth of the gospel, this comes from Galatians 2.14. This is when Paul is recounting an interaction with Peter, and he says, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, Before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's this way of walking. There's this being in step with the truth of the gospel that we are to have that influences all we do. Not just our time in church, but in everything we do. This this interaction here had nothing to do with what Peter was doing in church. It was outside of church. So this in keeping with the gospel. So how we're going to look at this is... How do we relate to God? Or how God relates to us, I mean, sorry. How God relates to us. See, this this gospel here is how he relates to us. And praise the Lord that he does. Because if there was no gospel and he related to us, it would be judgment and damnation. But because of the gospel, he can now relate to us as children, adopted children. I drive by all sorts of church signs, and there's one that on a regular basis says stuff that I have to go, Mm, no, that's not right. There was one that said, we are all God's children. And to a certain degree, yeah, God made us all, but only those who are in Christ are God's adopted children. And this is our promises that we get. And so this in light and truth of the gospel is how God relates to us. The second thing we see, I'm going to title it Mortification of Sin. Okay, I love the Puritans, and the Puritans use that. Our, our covenant says continually repenting of sin. But we use that word repent, it's a churchy word. You know, you're not at 
Fred Myers and go, oh, I need to repent. Uh, you know, you're not going to do that, right? It's not something that you, you use to say, I'm going to turn and go another direction, right? I'm going to repent from this aisle. That doesn't work. The Bible uses much stronger language than that. It says, put to death. That's not, you know, pat on the back and say, okay, just stay over there for a minute. No, it's kill it. Look at what Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So this mortification of sin, this constantly repenting of sin, we're going to see in Romans, and it's going to be how we relate to God and to others. See, when we sin, there's always one person that's offended by it, and that's God. Sin is always before him. But many of our sins are sins that also go horizontally and hurt those around us. And so Romans is going to show us that this part of this mortification of sin is not only not doing things to each other, but doing things to each other rightly. And so this constantly repenting of sin is imperative. And then the last one, newness of life. Ephesians 4 says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge after your creator. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk now in the newness of life. So this newness of life is how we view ourselves. And so there's three parts here we're going to look at. How we relate to God, how we relate to others, and how we relate and look at ourselves. This is all a part of the church covenant of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And praise be to God that all of what we're looking at today is the newness of life. We get newness of life in every aspect of our life, not just the parts we want. So, starting in Romans 12 is a big task. Romans 1 through 11 might just be the Alps or the Himalayas of the Bible. So to try to summarize all of Romans 1 through 11 is more than I have time or mental capacity to do. One of my favorite authors preached 255 sermons on Romans 1 through 11. And so I don't think we'll do it justice, but to say Romans 1 through 11 is all about who we are because of the gospel. Romans 12 to the end is all about how to respond to it. We talked in the past imperatives and indicatives. These are who you are versus what you do. And that's what we see here in Romans 12. So we have to get that we are never going to get past the gospel. We're never going to get past the grace of God. As a matter of fact, we're to dwell in it. We're to bask. We're to bathe in it. It's to be pouring over us continually. It's not, you know, I've had enough of the gospel. Can we talk about something else? No, the gospel makes everything we talk about ours in Christ. And so only this vision of God's mercy will allow us to walk together, to walk in the life that he has given us. So part one, how God relates to us. So here we go. We're going to go into Romans 12 now. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, that's brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
So when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, the word therefore simply means because of what came before. So Paul is talking about the 2,500 words he's already uttered about how great this God is. He says, because of all of that and because of God's mercy. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, let's go all the way back to Romans 1 when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. That means everyone. So this gospel, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the fact that Christ's sacrifice was taken and that he resides in us is the power that allows us to have this conversation today. This gospel does not limit it to, but it does include God's love, his grace, his righteousness, the grace of the gift of faith. All of that is included in this. So Paul is calling us to action here. He's saying, because of what I've explained before, you need to do some work. This, by the mercies of God, is a summary term that means all of the things that God's ever done that's been merciful to you, because of that, walk in this way. Notice here, Paul doesn't say, well, because you're scared of going to hell, or because you're scared of God's wrath. It's right for us to fear God. It's right for us to not take our relationship with God lightly. But notice, we're not following God out of fear. And that's where I think the world kind of misses it. They, they look at us and we gather together and we sing these songs and they'll say, well, they're just scared of God judging them. And, and we would say, yeah, we're right. But the reason we're doing this is because we're not judged because of Christ. And so, they, again, like the world, they only get part of it. They don't get the whole thing. So this mercies of God being put on us, this inexcusable and undeserving sinner being given the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in their place, making us his children. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, there, the, the word religion, they, we use the word, the New Testament word for religion is grace, and for following religion is gratitude. Those words are actually the same word in Greek. They mean the same thing. And so when we talk about being given grace and then responding in gratitude, those are the same ideas. And so one of the reasons why we want to do the things that are listed here is because we have gratitude for God's grace. We also do it because he told us to. We also do it because there's blessing in it. There's all sorts of reasons to follow God. And so make sure that we don't miss that. Now there's going to be some overlap because this section's all about how we relate to God. And there is going to be some overlap with how we relate to others. And I think this is intentional because God never expected us to come together here on Sundays, get filled up with doctrine and theology, and then do nothing about it. And so we see this right here where Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now that's a really weird phrase. I know you've all heard that verse. You probably have seen it on coffee cups. We've talked about it before. But think about that, a living sacrifice. Sacrifice means to put something to death. So this is a living, put-to-death thing. Sounds a lot like take up your cross daily. Sounds like we are constantly dying as a living sacrifice. Maybe another way to look at this is because we have new life, we won't die. And so even though we deserve that death, we aren't getting it. Just like those animals in the Old Testament that would die for the sins. We aren't going to die because the sacrifice has been accepted. So that's maybe how to view this. Either way, whatever the, whatever the way to understand this is that look at how God responds to it. Holy and acceptable 
to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Acceptable means pleasing. So how is it that our actions are pleasing to God in this situation? It's because they're looked at through the lens of Christ. See, you can't get away from the gospel here. You can't go, okay, I believe the gospel. Now i got to go figure out how to be a living sacrifice. No, it's all the same. The reason our sacrifices are acceptable and pleasing and holy, which means without spot or blemish, is because they're looked at through Christ. And this idea of worship, to worship something is to adore it. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not a music style. Worship is everything we do with life. It's not the thing we do before the pastor gets up and talks at you. Worship is all of life, and it's adoration. And so worship is something we do continually. And again, we see the gospel in all of this, that he would take our acts that many times are polluted with, well, what's this person thinking, or what's that person thinking, or what if I do it wrong, or, or whatever, and yet he still sees them as holy because of Christ. And you think about that, how many times do you do something absolutely purely for God? It's hard to do that because there's all sorts of other things this world gets in our way. Well, and if I raise my hands to God, someone might judge me, or if I say it the wrong way, or if I, there's all these thoughts. And so for us to have an incredibly pure act of worship is very, very rare. But look at what it says. It says God sees it that way. Why? Because of God's mercy. What is that responding to? God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in light of all that the Lord has done and given to us, the spiritual riches, it logically flows that we would want to serve him. And so Paul moves into that. We're going to take verses 2 and then 9 through 16 together so that it matches our covenant flow. Paul will excuse me, I hope. If not, I'll talk to him in heaven and ask for forgiveness. But verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect. So this is how we relate to others and how we relate to God. How we relate to others and how we relate to God. Notice it says here, do not be conformed to this world. This conforming means to assume an expression that does not reflect reality. Think of it as a masquerade. It's going, your heart's been changed, but I'm going to make sure I look exactly like the world. It's like the butterfly deciding he wants to wear a caterpillar costume. And that's what we do, don't we? When we go, I want to look just like the world. I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to look just like the world. Paul's saying, that cannot happen. Spurgeon says, there's nothing worse that can happen to a church than be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. This word transformed is the word metamorphosis, which is literally the term that we use for what a butterfly goes from being a little creepy crawler, and yes, the caterpillars can be cute, and God gave them defense mechanisms, and there's all sorts of cuteness there, but really they're pretty pathetic compared to the butterfly. So this metamorphosis means a total change in who you are. Metamorphosis. See, there's only two ways to view the world. God's way and all the other ways. And you'll find out that all those other ways are very much the same. Spurgeon again says, never dream that you can be pardoned and then allowed to live like you did before. The wish to do, show, do so shows that you are still under condemnation. I'm going to just let him say that. 
But really what he's saying is, is if you've been transformed, you've been transformed. Be who you are. Don't try to cover it up. And Spurgeon, in his very direct way, says, if you're trying to cover it up, maybe you're not transformed after all. That's a harsh word to hear. But thankfully, Paul does not leave us there. He doesn't just say, figure it out, go do it. He says, here's how you do it. Renew your mind. Philip's translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold you from within. I love that. So the Holy Spirit comes and remolds us and makes us look like Christ. This is not a let go and let God type of situation. We don't just sit back and go, okay, God, work on me. There's actions involved here. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in a a group, life group, a Bible study. We need that constantly. This renewal of mind in, uh, in English gets lost, but this is a continuous renewal of your mind. And the only way to do that is to constantly going back to God's Word over and over. And look at this. It says it's good, acceptable, and perfect. We understand what good means. Acceptable means pleasing, and perfect means complete. And so he's saying when you do this renewal of a mind, you'll be made complete. You'll be made completely like the butterfly. You are ready to soar. Again, the gospel is not so we know stuff. It's so we know God. So this mortification of sin is I am going to put off trying to be like the world, and I'm going to put on trying to be like Christ. Now, we'll skip down to verse 9. As we read 9 through 13, notice how many of these words are communal. They're we words. They're us words. They're one another words. See, we can't go live in a vacuum and just practice our Christianity by itself. We need others, and this assumes it. Verse 9, let love be genuine. You can't love something. You can't love somebody if there's nobody around. You got to be around people. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality can't take care of yourself and call it hospitality. See, we have this kind of grandiose idea that what we need to solve all of our problems is we need the right person in charge. We need the right overarching structure. If only everybody in Congress was a Bible-believing Christian. If only fill in the blank. But that's not how the Bible approaches it. Paul doesn't go, hey, in order to fix things, we got we to gotta fix the, who's on top. No, Paul says, we're starting at the bottom. So how do we, how do we get our minds wrapped around this? Well, I'm going to go to The Hobbit because The Hobbit's awesome. Gandalf says, Saruman, the, the white wizard who's going bad, he says, Saruman believes that it's only with great power that will hold evil in check. That's not what I've found, though. I have found that it's the small things, the everyday deeds from ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay, simple acts of kindness and love. And if you've ever read Lord of the Rings or Hobbit, that's really the story of the Lord of the Rings. So this this statement here is saying, Paul in 9 through 13 is saying, do the mundane, do the ordinary, do the routine of loving the people that you're around. 
Mourn with those who mourn. Be patient. Be genuine. Bless those who persecute you. And as these ordinary things begin spreading amongst us, it revitalizes and changes the world. Our sinful world is so foreign to this that it's going to change the world from the bottom up. Isn't that what Christ did? He didn't go for the smartest of the smart. He went for the dregs. And then what does it say? They turned the world upside down. But we need to get here that Paul is not telling us to go do something foreign. He, I mean, if you were to go through 9 through 13, you could just say Christ's love was genuine. Christ abhorred evil. Christ held fast to what is good. You just go right through that. So Paul is painting a picture of Jesus here. He's saying, go be like the guy that died for you and that you claim to be little ones of, because Christian means little Christs. We want to please God. We want to glorify God. When we get together and we act like this, notice this looks a lot like heaven. Wouldn't you want to be in a place where love was genuine? We outdo each other in doing good. Instead, we seem to outdo each other in doing sin. Wouldn't it be better if we had a world where it's like, no, I'm going to give you this. No, I'm going to give you that. And I'm going to and do it all for the right motives, not for outdoing it to get a pat on the back, but to outdo it because of love, because of genuine love. This word genuine love is a, is a pretty cool word. It does not come from gutting it out and just going, oh, I'm going to love you, right? It comes from something else. It comes from the fact that in Romans 5, 5, he says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. That idea of poured out means it's poured out, it's overflowing, you flooded everything because God's love is in you. And the Holy Spirit is what gave it to you. This genuine love, the word for genuine here is ahippokratos, meaning not hypocritical. A hypocrite was an actor who put on a facade to play something that he or she wasn't. And so here, this love is to be real love. John Stott says, love is not theater, it belongs in the real world. Indeed, love and hypocrisy exclude one another. Love is the sum of virtue, hypocrisy is the epitome of vice. And Paul puts them right together and says, hypocrisy is not what we should be known for, love is. Remember, we are not loved Again, back to the gospel. Because we're intrinsically good, right? God loved us and then made us good. He said, I'm gonna take the runt of the litter and make it the best. That's us. If Christians think this way about the gospel and being in step with the gospel, it would really make it a lot easier to live with unattracted people. And I don't mean good-looking, but I mean people that you're like, ah, I think they have the, the, the spiritual gift of repulsion, and I'm going to push you away. We all have people like that, that we don't want to be around, that we would say are unattractive. I don't want to go near them. But if we live in light of this gospel and we have this genuine love, we're going to say, oh, Lord, I was so much more unattractive to that per- than that person is to me. To you I was repulsive, and yet you were tortured, you were killed, you died for me, and all I need do is give up a little time to this unattractive person. See, when we live in light of the gospel, it changes all of our interactions with how we talk to people and how we go, and that's just the first thing on the list. Next up, hate evil, grasp what is good. Interesting that love and then hate 
right next to each other. They actually go together because when you love a person, you're going to hate everything that hurts them. And that's the evil that's being talked about here. This loathing and wanting nothing evil to come near the beloved. Then it says love brotherly. This means love as if they're a part of your family. Love as if they are related to you. Show honor. Not just mutual love, but honor. This means speak well of someone. Even if you don't know them, I'm going to speak well of them because they are a fellow believer. This showing honor. This is the opposite of gossip. Be zealous, which means to glow. Fervent, serve the Lord. This is not just a lamp. It's like a pot that's bubbling over, just serving and fervently. Rejoice in hope. Be patient and constant in prayer. We endure and we can have patience because we know how all of this ends and we know that Christ is patient with us. Contribute to the needs of others, which means share and then practice hospitality. The word at the beginning for loving brotherly is the word Philadelphia and we're all familiar with that word. It means brotherly love. We're not as familiar with the word for hospitality here. It's philozenia, which means loving the alien, loving the non-whatever, stranger. You have to not just practice hospitality, but pursue it, seek after it. Again, this is the picture of Christ. This is how He loves us. This is how we are to be in response to His love. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. So the list continues, bless those who want you gone. Bless those that would like for you to cease to exist, and don't curse them. This is the exact opposite of the world's way. The world's way is first thing we do is take out those who are against us. The Bible's way is first thing we do is we bless those that are against us. Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? What did he say on the cross? Forgive them, Father. For they know exactly what they're doing, those jerks. No. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then next, be ready to feel what others are feeling. It says that they're going to weep and they're going to rejoice. We are allowed to feel and we're allowed to grieve, and we're allowed to grieve with each other, and we've done that well. We've had losses in this churches, and we've had things to be rejoicing about in this church. We are to feel that with each other. And then lastly, or next one, live in harmony. This in the Greek is literally think the same towards one another. So everybody thinks the same towards each other. We have a renewed mind. We have a common goal in mind so we can be in harmony. We can live together in harmony. And then lastly, do not think too highly of yourself, but be wise in God's sight. Think about who Jesus hung out with. He fraternized with the lowest of the low. He didn't go to the people that made him look good. He went to the people and made them look good. This is the same with us. Our, our natural response should be to go to those who are on the margins of society and bring them to Christ. So last we get to be who you are. How do we relate to ourselves? How do we see ourselves? This is for verses 3 through 8. And this is what Paul says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that has been assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." So Paul's saying, don't think too high of yourself, but also don't go too low with yourself. The the not too high, he says, do not think more highly, and instead have sober judgment. Previously in Romans 11.35, he says, we can't pay God back for the gift of his son's death on the cross. And so we need to recognize that we are wretches. We cannot earn it. Yes, you may have been valedictorian. Yes, you may have never done any of the big sins, but you still are a wretch in deserving damnation. But Christ comes in and goes, I'll take your place. And that's the truth that we are to live in. This sober judgment simply means sound judgment. We are nothing. 1 Peter 5, 5, we are nothing. And Christ makes us everything because he takes our place. Faith in Christ brings this Humility. We saw it earlier um, in part two. But this humility comes from the fact when we look at Christ, we cannot think of ourselves up there. We can't think of as high as he is. And all we can do is bow. It says many members, literally we're all a part of the same body. We are part of the whole. And the body is like the head. And so when we, when we take ourselves out of the body, it's like removing part of your body. Yeah, you can adapt and you can learn how to do that, but you can only do it so much. We need every single part of the body together. And so Paul goes into this. He goes, don't think too highly of yourselves, but also don't think too lowly. Don't think you have nothing to offer. As a matter of fact, every single one of you has something to offer. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The word gift and the word grace are the same word. So having the grace that differ according to the grace given to us. Having the gifts that differ according to the gifts given to us. However you want to work it. Either way, he's saying, this is God's gift to you. I have given you gifts for you to use. Don't keep them wrapped and sitting under the tree. Take them out and use them. These free gifts are just like our salvation. God didn't save us and then say, I'm going to put you over there on the shelf and never use you. He says, I've saved you. I've given you gifts. Go use them. Show them how great I am by how you use my gifts. We are a part of Christ's body. We are all given gifts. Now, these gifts, some of them are public gifts, such as prophecy and teaching and exhorting. The word prophecy just simply means to say the truth out loud. So it's like preaching. This isn't predicting the future. It could, but it doesn't mean you just predict the future. Other gifts are non-public, service. Some of the best gifts are service that no one sees. You think about that. Things here at the church don't just happen. Somebody has to do them. And a lot of those people do it without ever getting their name proclaimed. Contributing. Got to have money to pay the lights. Have the lights on. Not pay the lights, that's weird. But have the lights on. Got to have, I mean, we got to have people leading. We have all sorts of little ministries. We got to have somebody in charge. And then we've got to have people that go and care for people when they can't care for themselves. Like making phone calls to the people that can't get out. Like going and visiting people. 
All of this happens and it's not out there in front. But guess what? It's probably better ministry than what I'm doing right here. Actually, I don't know. It's not probably. It is. Because when we are the body and we see ourselves as not too great for what we're doing and can humble ourselves and go care, we are looking way more like Christ. So these activities, every single one of them, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, all these acts of mercy, these are all gifts from the Spirit. And they're given to each and every one of us. Now some of you may be great at acts of mercy, others may be great at teaching. Paul's point here is go do it and do it rightly in light of what Jesus has already done for you. Don't get up and teach because you think you're the best. Don't get up and serve because you think you're the best. Get up and do it because you want to be like your Savior and to show your Savior off to those around you. So how do we figure out what our gifts are? Well, first of all, meditate on God's grace. Recognize that God has given you gifts. Every single one of you has a gift. Second, when it comes to the question of gifts, some people will go and do a spiritual gift assessment or a, or a, a, a skills finder or something like that. No, actually what you probably need to do is look at what you're already doing. You know, one of the things that's nice about uh, elders is that we as a church, we look and see who's already doing the eldering and then we just give them the title elder. We don't actually come along and go, you know, if you start doing this, we'll call you elder. No, they're already doing it. They're already teaching. They're already leading. They're already serving. And all we've done is given them a little title. That's the same thing when it comes to our gifts. Most of the people that already have these gifts are already using them. You already know. They're the things that get you animated. They want, you want to go do for your Lord. Yesterday I was talking to somebody, and this person is, is incredibly gifted. He has more gifts then I mean, it's just amazing. He can do anything. And his response when we were talking to him as the pastors and we said, well, what do you want to do? He goes, I will do whatever you guys say because I just want to serve. I'm like, but, but, but aren't you really good at this? And aren't you really good at that? And he goes, yeah, I could do those or I could do this one. I'm not good at it, but I'll do it. That's the mindset that we need to have. We need to have this mindset of whatever it is the Lord has for me, I'm going to do it whether people see it or not. And thirdly, we need to recognize that the embodiment of this gift is Christ. And the audience of this gift is Christ. All we are doing is we are pointing back to Christ. Is it any wonder that the body is meant to resemble the head? Our body, this church, is meant to resemble Christ? Paul's exhortation to be living sacrifices is literally saying, go be Jesus. Go be like Jesus to the people around you. The more we are renewed by the transforming of our minds, the more we will look corporately and individually like Christ. See, to be a Christian is not to be a spectator. It's to be a participant in Christ. And this is not, I'm going to have a list out here for you all to sign up for ministries. That's not the point of this. The point of this is, where are you right now being Christ to those around you? It can simply be with your kids. It can simply be with your neighbors. It can simply be with somebody you haven't met yet and you're going to meet them tomorrow. He gives us a gift that we can point back to the giver. So our covenant is here for a reason. It's a reminder. It's to say, hey, if you're a part of this church body, this is what we expect. And this is what we expect from each other. But the thing is, it's not greater than what the Lord expects from us as followers of Christ. And what a picture this would be 
if our church could be like this, sincere love, discerning, affectionate, and respectful love that is both enthusiastic and patient with each other, both generous and hospitable, both benevolent and sympathetic, marked by harmony and unity and humility. I think our Christian churches and this this church would be happier if we all modeled this individually. And it starts with each of us individually, not looking around and figuring out who's not doing it. So wouldn't this be a beautiful and amazing church to be in? This is not going to happen by accident, but it happens in each and every one of our hearts starting right now. Will you embrace the gospel fully? Will you allow Christ to indwell you and send his spirit to baptize you and fill you to overflowing so that the love of Jesus gets out of you and into everyone around you? I think this is the kind of place that if we were like that, the world would run to, that I would run to, that we would all want to be around. So how can we make the beauty of what Christ did on the cross apparent in our lives today? Well, let's go to him and ask him right now. Heavenly Father, we cannot do this on our own. We need your spirit. Lord, it is your grace and your mercy that allows us to even have this conversation with you right now. It's not because we're extra clean and extra special and we're in church on a Sunday morning, but it's because of your son's death on the cross and then his resurrection and ascension preparing a place for us that we can be here right now, that you hear these prayers, that you will answer these prayers. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have genuine love, that we would repent of sin, that we would not conform to this world, and that we would see you rightly, and that would inform all that we do. Because when we see you rightly, Lord, everything else falls into place. So Lord, I pray for that blessing on each and every person, that we would see you rightly today. In your name, amen.